We have teamed up with 500 Startups' CVC Insider Series, where top CVC practitioners offer advice and best practices regarding common challenges encountered within corporate venturing. Featured this week is an interview with our own James Mawson, our editor-in-chief, and Nicolas Sauvage of TDK Ventures. Thank you, 500 Startups, again, for uh, making this series happen. This is really meaningful. And today is going to be really special. It's... uh, it's not going to be a CVC that's going to be uh, telling us about the ecosystem. It's going to be James Mawson, who is the founder of Mawsonia and editor-in-chief of what we call GCV, but it's Global Corporate Venturing. And what I think is going to be really exciting today is that we are going to have someone who's been in the middle of the ecosystem of corporate venturing for more than a decade, right in the middle. And he would have seen all the best practices, but also the ones that are not best practices. And so I really want to hear from him. And I also know that he's passionate and has a very good appreciation about history. So you can uh, trust that the perspective would be very interesting and sound. So Jim, without further ado, could you maybe for five or 10 minutes give your personal introduction as well as your companies? Sure, well, thank you, Nicola. It's a great uh, pleasure and honor to be here today. And obviously, thanks to Sean and 500 Startups for being able to host this. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing the work that you guys have been doing around the world. I certainly remember when you were starting out as a firm and the idea of taking globally venture capital at an early stage to different parts of the world was still pretty exotic and pretty rare. And the success that you've made of it is is really sort of exemplary, I think, for a lot of startups out there. So thank you for all the work you've done to make the world a better place. And obviously, Nicola, thank you for TDK for, you know, for being such a supporter of the corporate venturing community. And uh, I'm a little bit nervous. I've got to say what sort of questions you might ask. I'm usually on the other side of the table as a journalist asking questions of superstars such as yourself. So to be uh, to have the tables reversed, I think we will uh, we'll see how it goes. But you asked it for a little bit of the journey that, um, that I've been on. Um, so I said that Global Corporate Venturing is the first publication out of Morsania uh, in 2010. So I was the private equity and venture capital editor at Dow Jones on the international side. So they run a number of trade papers, Wall Street Journal, Dow Jones Newswires and various other bits and pieces. Before that, uh, I've been an international editor at the Financial Times Business. Uh, and before that, I had um, you know, worked as a freelancer uh, for The Economist and various other national newspapers and trade papers and in whole different areas, actually. And, um, and uh, oh, I'd also been a sort of foreign correspondent a bit covering the uh, European Union accession countries back in 2003. So anyway, my background from leaving university back in 1997 was, as a, was uh, more from the media side on the journalism side. I did a War Studies and History degree at King's in London, uh, which was great, actually. Uh, I've got to say I was a terrible student, but uh, I enjoyed the course and uh, enjoyed the people I met. Uh, And then I ended up um, in journalism. uh, And then by moving into the private equity and venture capital field through the global financial crisis, you know, it was really the epicenter in many ways of the, the business stories of the day, you know, which was the sort of leverage buyout bubble, um, 
particularly how debt had been growing, which was used in sort of mortgages. But private equity were picking up those same trends of CDOs or collateralized debt obligations, using leverage or borrowing to sort of improve their overall financial returns. And I had a view that coming out of the global financial crisis, that what we would start to see was a shift not so much away from debt, but the debt would start to get quite commoditized. And if that's the case, then how do you outperform? How can you borrow more money at better terms, which is a, a fundamental requirement for outperformance from, a, from an equity shareholder point of view, but you have to grow the top line, you have to grow the revenue piece. And from that, hopefully at higher margin and multiple to improve your profitability or free cash flow to therefore borrow more at better terms. And that's true for whether you're at a country level or a corporate level or really at an individual level as well. It's that same dynamic that holds. But basic economic theory says that, the, that fundamentally there's only three sources of that equity growth, human capital, physical capital and innovation. But that innovation piece was quite nebulous. And so I looked at some of the research that was coming out from Clay Christensen and uh, you know Henry Chesborough and Steve Blank and others. And I was very much of a view, having had the fortune to talk to Adi Ignatius over at Harvard Business Review, when he goes, look, I'm yeah, he's the editor at HBR, and he said, look, you only really there's only two good top ten type of researchers that we've published in the past twenty odd years. You know, one of which is you know Clay. Uh, and an open or disruptive innovation. And the other is the idea of reverse innovation, how you take good ideas from the rest of the world and bring them to more US or more developed markets. So I was like, well, okay, innovation is obviously important. There's this idea of open innovation. We only write about independent VCs that raise money from institutional investors, the pension funds, life assurers, asset managers, you know, and then try and invest in companies for the financial returns, give the money back to the LPs, take a stake as it as the money gets transacted through, everyone's happy. And I was like, what would it look like if you're a corporate or a government or a strategic investors and it wasn't just about the financial returns, but what the understanding of dis disruption would mean to that business or that economy or that individual as well? And so I think that was the sort of starting point. I was like, well, who does it? You know, was the first question. And what do they do? So we started, I started a publication. I handed in my notice from Dow Jones at the, um, at the beginning of 2010. Um, I had to work through my three months notice. And then in May 2010, started GCV. And the first publication came out in June, a couple of weeks later. And we had had the website and the magazine up and running. And I think that... Um, you know, that idea of sort of corporate venturing, that idea of, you know, looking at things strategically and asking two pretty basic questions, who does it and what do they do, enabled us really to kind of then track what fundamentally we hadn't seen otherwise, which was how many corporates back in 2000, 2011 were actually invested either directly in startups or indirectly as an LP and VC fund. So as you can see on this chart here, there wasn't many, there was a few hundred, you know, and then last year, 2020, there were more than 2000 corporates. So we've seen, you know, a near tenfold increase from the 200 plus that I actually started with in the Excel sheet back in early 2010. 
you know, everyone mentioned Intel. And then when you ask people, they would mention one or two others. And then you ask them and they would mention one or two others. And he looked at the data and he kept on going and built up that small list. And it's all done from an Excel. And then roll the clock forward over that past decade, we see nearly 5,000 corporates invest directly or indirectly. You know, and here's some of the sort of GCV clients who attend our digital forum or our live events, or they subscribe to the publications, you know, or they join the Institute, the Training Academy, and uh, otherwise they just help us really. That's been a fundamental reason why we've seen so much capital flow into the innovation ecosystem, supporting the entrepreneurs, making the world a better place on the whole. Not all of them do, but most of them do. You know, back in 2010, 2011, you know, it was about 50 billion primarily in the US as an overall venture market called into PitchBook. You know, but corporations were involved with maybe a third of that by deal value. Roll the clock forward to the past couple of years, and we've seen over that decade nearly one and a half trillion dollars invested, and corporations are involved with two thirds of the deals. And that increase has been because of corporates alongside other non traditional investors like sovereign wealth funds, private equity firms, hedge funds, mutual funds coming in to the ecosystem. And one of the things which I'm super excited, and I love if the tables were turned here, Nicola, to ask you, which is corporations actually have changed the narrative. Here, they've gone from basically being the last money in in an economic cycle and the first money out when a downturn hits. If you look at the past four quarters of 2020, through COVID, through the economic dislocation everyone's been going through, corporates continue to invest quarter by quarter, month by month, same amounts and increasing amounts in increasing numbers of deals. And that is transformational. The reason why VC as an industry has been pro-cyclical is because VCs have usually done fewer deals because they've been worried about their fundraising. With corporates and others supporting their deals and committing to funds, VCs have more confidence to do more deals themselves. So it's a very virtuous circle, and it's because corporates have changed the narrative and gone pro-cyclical. And it's both at the early stage, the middle stage, and the end stage. I'm mindful I'm running on a little bit there, Nicola. So I think perhaps if we get back to the sort of practice, that's how we started. But happy if you've got other questions. I'm not going to let you turn the table, especially so early. <laughs> uh, but it's definitively from my understanding, a big change from 10 years ago to today, where 10 years ago, corporate VCs had a bad reputation, at least from the VCs not wanting to invest with them, if not from the entrepreneurs themselves. While today, it feels like there was a lot of improvement. So my first question is really about, do you think that 10 years ago, the bad reputation that CVCs had, and this was not all CVCs, but as, as a group, uh, was justified and do you feel really the improvements that have been made uh, justify these bad reputations to go away? Yeah, good question. Uh, um, I, I can see, well, I'm glad you didn't go into journalism, Nicola. I think a lot of people would be sweating more uh, as much as I am at this moment. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, it broadly was justified. And the reason why a lot of VCs felt it was justified at, you know, corporates, weren't necessarily good partners in the syndicate or for entrepreneurs is because they looked back, particularly at the dot-com bubble. You know, so in 1999, 2000, about 100 billion per year was invested. It's about two and a half times that now, or last year, in the year before. 
So massive increase, even from the highest point, the highest bubble area in that area. But what had happened, the reason why so much money was invested in that 99, 2000 period, the dot-com first bubble, was because corporates came in, they came on mass, like Accenture would set up a $1 billion fund. They would do lots of deals at crazy valuations. Right at the end of the economic cycle, the markets turned, the NASDAQ fell, and all those corporates disappeared. They were doing it because they were in for financial reasons. They thought they could make some money, change their name, put a dot com at the end. They Analysts would love them. The stock market, their stock would increase. What was not to like? And the moment that changed, that financial reason went away, they all left. They left all their entrepreneurs in the lurch. They sold their stakes for cents on the dollars. You know, it was just you know, a crazy period of financial irresponsibility that didn't help the entrepreneurs and the VCs, which are in it for their career, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, were like, we remember, we're not going to let you back in. You know, now some corporates step through, groups like Intel and Cisco, you know, GE, um, you know, Johnson & Johnson, Fidelity, others continue to invest through. They've got a longer track record, you know. And over time, the better corporates who started to re-emerge back in did so more for strategic as well as financial reasons. And they learned. They learned from those corporates that went through the dot-com crisis and survived and thrived. And they said, maybe we should have set ourselves up more like that. And it, But it takes time. It takes years for that reputation to change. So 2010, there weren't many corporates doing it, but the corporates that started in that 2009-10 period, think Google Ventures, think Tencent, you know, think a whole host of others, you know, they do deals at better valuations. They offer more support to their portfolio companies. You know, an entrepreneur, she only wants five things. She wants capital, customers, Product development, hiring, and an exit. Maybe now a bit more regulatory and sort of geopolitical understanding as well. But broadly, those five things, if you can offer that, the entrepreneurs will love you. You're adding value to the business. And if you can hang around and reinvest to future rounds, the other VCs will like you. Oh, and by the way, the corporates might buy other portfolio companies, not just for that one they've invested in, but other VC-backed ones. What's not to like? So I think the real milestone change was we were fortunate to have Scott Cooper, who's the um, managing partner at Andreessen Horowitz, and Scott Sandell, not just because they were called Scott, you know, uh, and Scott Sandell, who's the managing partner of NEA, you know, speak at our GCVI summit in California in January, just before COVID struck. And they both stood on stage and said, the reputations change or change in, you know, there's 600 plus corporates with more than a 10 year track record. They're doing good deals at good valuations, offering support and acquiring companies. What's not to like? We want to work more with you. And they said that to an audience of 900 corporate investors. Their parent companies manage more than $10 trillion in aggregate annual revenue. They are the global economy. And they're saying, we want to work with you, Mr. and Mrs. VC. And we want to work with your portfolio companies. And we want to understand the entrepreneurs. We want to help. Not all of them, 
But a lot of the corporates take that attitude. And TDK is probably a perfect example, this generation of CVCs that are stepping up, you know, within what, a couple of years, you've had three positive exits, you've got a great portfolio, and you still went through COVID. You're a classic example of a corporate that probably 20 years ago would have started, stopped, never been seen again. You stepped up, you continue going through, and you're a great role model in many ways, Nicola. So here I want to give credit to my CEO, Ishiguro Sen, because when we set up TDK Ventures, we said we want to be there for the entrepreneurs where they have had less investment than in the past, material science and so on. So, so the why we set it up was actually to help entrepreneurs who don't normally get funding. So during COVID-19, when it's even worse, that's where we can step up. So here I really want to give the shout out to my CEO more than me. Or TDK Ventures. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about the best examples of CVC that have been there for 10 years. So let's not talk about the one that's been there for more than 10 years, but the one that actually came from these bad times, the dot-com and so on, and that came back from the hashes or was completely new, but they saw all the problems that happened. Uh, do you have some examples of these CVCs that have now 10 years track record, what they did really, really well? And why this reputation in the industry is improving is probably some of these early uh, successes or good examples. Yeah, well, funny enough, we actually have written a book on this exactly question, Nicola. It's called um, Corporate Venture in a Survival Guide. And I would, when I say we've written the book, what it's actually done is by Heidi Mason and Liz Arrington, who did all the hard work. It's their thought leadership over 20 plus years. You know, and they wrote it down and they say, how do corporates go through different parts of the longevity cycle? How do they get through those first naught to three years? What happens at four to six? How do they understand what the CEO or the C-suite might want? How do you get through executive change? How do you get through strategic change? How do you add value to portfolio companies at different stages of their life cycle? You know, so that book, Corporate Venture and Survival Guide by Heidi and Liz, and I was very fortunate and honoured that they uh, that they included some of my thoughts as well. But, you know, really kind of understands that sort of dynamic, which is it's really hard to get executive support. It's very hard to get business unit support. You know, many CVCs spend as much time, if not more, dealing internally with the dynamic of what the parent company is wanting, what their issues are, networking with them. Oh, and by the way, they've then got to go out and find all these deals and support them and offer the support. It's a really hard job. It's not surprising that lots struggle. You know, so that data I showed of the 4,000 plus that had done a deal, only 2,000 did a deal last year, which is great, great numbers, like I say. But the other 2,000 didn't. Why is that? And it's because it's really hard. It's really hard to not just find good venture investors. If it was easy, a lot more VCs would have a much higher IRR. But it's difficult. And then you've got to go back and sort of validate yourself, find the great Ishiguro Sands, you know, as CEOs, get the executive support, you know, build a case for why it should be existing and support. So I think, you know, if I had to sort of summarize why groups did better, they didn't just start from a better 
starting point in terms of understanding how to do venture investing, how to build a track record, how to work with entrepreneurs, how to build that executive support. They also understood that usually over time, the corporate venture and uniting goals adjust. What you need to do to get started isn't necessarily the same once you've got a, you know, a strong portfolio and you're thinking about exits. When do you exit? Who to exit to? Do you buy it yourself? How do you work with your R&D, your M&A team? There's a lot of different questions that start to come out about year three than when at year zero. And again, when you get to 10 years track record, what do you do? How do you incentivize or motivate people to stay within the team, if you want, or build in the new people, build in succession? You know, those are really difficult questions for VCs as well as CVCs. And I think, you know, it's hard is the summary. And those that do it are exceptional people and exceptional talents. You know, I've covered pretty well much from a journalistic career, all parts of the financial ecosystem, you know, from the big hedge funds through the big private equity firms, big asset managers, the big sort of brokers, everything, all parts of the capital markets ecosystem from insurance to banking to everything else. I've been very fortunate in my career, you know, to meet a lot of amazing people. And I would say doing corporate venture capital well and understanding the ramifications is probably the hardest thing in financial services. I think that's inspiring at the same time, daunting for everyone listening in the audience. Uh, but I feel like we are getting to a golden nugget. And, and uh, what you just mentioned is actually one of the key insights I got from reading the book you just mentioned, which is you have life cycles uh, along the way for CVCs. Uh, so adjusting the way you run your CVC along this life cycle, what would be for you the non-obvious insight you wish to share to the audience about how to adjust? So we're still young. So clearly, I want to know too. How do I get from the zero to three year to the three plus years? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult question. I think you know, just being aware, you know, just being aware of the types of questions or the types of issues is great because then you can talk to your peer group at the other CVCs. You can send your team to the GCV Institute and Academy so you can improve the professional development. You know, you can attend the conferences, read the publications, build your network. And then you can share wall stories. What works? You know, can you help me here? Or how do I deal with this issue that the CEO wants? Or whatever it might be. You know, so having a network really helps. Helps yeah. with deals, but actually it helps you as a CVC understand what you do and what some of the issues are. Having someone who you can share some war stories with, it's it's just really helpful. You know, it's a lonely business running the corporate venturing unit. So I want to pick up on, on what you just said, which is network. And, and my observation is actually the corporate venture family is really friendly and really open and willing to help others. And maybe this is a chance for you to do a shout out for your upcoming event, Digital Forum, because I feel like having opportunities to network with other CBCs and, like you said, sharing war stories I think is really useful. So can you maybe share about why are you doing these events? And it used to be face-to-face, -face, but now it's digital. And maybe mention about Digital Forum event at the end of January. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, so we got this Digital Forum. It's at the end of January. 
<laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so if you go to gcvdigitalforum.com, it's between the 21st and 27th of January. We're super excited, actually, because we're launching what we call Global Innovation Venturing, uh, which will enable the top VCs and other investors to network better with the CVCs. But the traditional event has been much more for the CVCs by the CVCs. So people like yourself, Nicola, they kind of need to contribute um, to, the, to the discussion. The network happens. We get maybe 500 to 1,000 corporates who join. Um, we're doing the launch of the GCV Institute, so the Training Academy. And I'm delighted to say that TDK is one of the uh, advisory members and launch members for that. So thank you again. Uh, you know, we owe you a lot, I think, for this. I owe you a beer next time we meet up. Um, and then we're doing our Rising Stars and Emerging Leaders Awards. Because if you think about it, go back to those two original questions. Who does it? What do they do? The professional development, not just for the heads of units, so they could share best practices. But for the next level down, the emerging leaders and those coming into the industry for the first time, there's a lot to learn. So if you were able to identify the role models that people can learn from and who are happy to mentor, or happy to provide advice, then it makes hopefully the allocation of capital more efficient and the world a better place, more likely to make the entrepreneurs happy. You know, it's a good place to be. So we're very fortunate for this week. Uh, we've got a number of roundtables with NDA groups. We do a number of specialist sector and regional council and reports, and we try and look at the whole industry. But um, but fundamentally, it's designed to say, you know, that it's hard to be a CVC. How do you find deals? How do you use the the challenge platform to identify pitches? We're delighted that 500 startups is supporting us in that initiative and putting their amazing portfolio companies in so that they can meet the corporate investors. That's run by the GCV Connect powered by Proceeder platform in partnership with Ken Gatz over at Proceeder. You know, it's a great platform to look at deals, look at upcoming deals, network, share best practices. So yeah, so it's going to basically be a week long festival. We're calling it a festival corporate venturing and hopefully it's going to kickstart the year. It's, it's uh, we're pretty excited actually. And maybe this is the end of the uh, promotional part, but I'm going to say a secret. I think only my wife knows that. But back in December, 2018, I had the approval from my CEO to do the TDK Ventures. And in January, 2019, I went to the Montreal event uh, that you organized. And during that event, I had a chance to network with many people, but I actually changed my mind about something, which was initially I thought about um, the managing director of TDK Ventures would of course be someone from TDK, long lifer, uh, uh, TDK person. And during the Montreal event, I changed my mind thinking, actually, no, it's all about ecosystem. It's all about partnerships. It's all about the entrepreneurs. And I thought, okay, no, I actually should be the one driving this project. So you and your organization and everyone talking to me during that event really made me realize many, many things. And one of this was uh, how I positioned myself in that project. Interesting. So oh, one thing I also loved about your events is you put a lot of focus on diversity and inclusion. And I want to separate the two because I think they are always combine, and I think it's not giving them a service to combine them. Can you tell me about how you feel about diversity progress in the last 10 years and how you see it going forward? And what would be your recommendations on how to do it better? Not just doing it, but better. 
Yeah, great question. Um, it's, it is a subject close to my heart, actually, for um, you know, a number of personal reasons. But um, yeah, so, all right. so if you take the overall venture industry, there's some great research out of Harvard, which says, look at all professions, legal, doctors, you know, those types of people. And since 1970, they've broadly gone towards equality. To, towards you know gender equality if we take that as one lens you know of diversity you know look at vcs independent vcs the venture industry and it stayed almost exactly level it's up 1.8 percentage points from seven percent to about 8.8 percent of the overall industry are women you know and that's you know within the industry you know so why not that change? And then you look at corporates, corporate venturing, and it's one of the things we do. We, we track the sort of the number of women within the industry and, you know, how many of them are CVC heads, you know, and who are the rising stars and merging leaders and what's the team look like, you know? And it's a lot better. And it's because corporates, you know, have a diversity policy. They have an HR you know, and it's not necessarily okay to say our team all looks the same, all has the same background, and all thinks the same, and is looking for entrepreneurs who are the same. What's called pattern recognition by VCs can be very positive, but it can be very limiting. You know, and that diversity of thought and background can help you find different opportunities and as as the venture industry more broadly professionalizes thanks to corporates corporate ventures it's making it easier for other entrepreneurs to get money other types of people to come into the industry entrepreneurs people from corporates people not just necessarily who went to business school to a couple of buddies and then they back other people who went to the same business school who look exactly like them you know it's making it better you know and I think that's powerful you know and we were really fortunate we got some you know pretty stern advice in our early days from people like Tracy Isaac over at um, SVB and you know Claudia Van Muntz who used to run IBM's VC unit and a whole host of others you know, but I remember, I specifically remember, you know, walking into our London symposium, you know, and I was happened to be walking behind two people, you know, two women. And they said, oh, you know, they looked at this sea of faces, 500 odd faces, and almost all of them were men. You know, and they were like, oh, God, another room full of men, you know, let's grin and bear it. And, you know, do you know what I mean? It just wasn't, it's not necessarily a welcoming environment, you know, for for people who don't necessarily look like everyone else. So you've got to be mindful of that if your business, you know, is a service provider, you know. But I think it, the world's got a lot better, you know, in thinking about that. And VCs are definitely following on from it, you know. And But that diversity by gender is just one. Obviously, if you think about different backgrounds from business schools, different, you know, ethnicities, different sort of perspectives, it's really interesting that the majority of CVC unit heads who are on the power list, who are recommended or doing the deals by a peer group, are non-white male or non from that ethnicity of their parent company. You run a Japanese corporation CVC unit. Are you Japanese? Are you no. in Japan? No. Yeah. 
your team if you looked at your team like people amazing you know sort of investors like Anil and Andrew do they look like you do they have your same cultural and you know background and professional background I think you in are, a way when you talk about pattern recognition you can think about shortcuts and bias and I think that if you want to do really well you need to think differently from most of everyone else and that's why you are going to make good investments So I think that that diversity diversity of thought is really important, and I, I really appreciate all your efforts for this. Now moving to inclusion, and here I think there is something really interesting with what happened with the pandemic. It's been very bad for many many things, but I feel like it's giving more chance for inclusion, especially entrepreneurs who didn't necessarily have an easy access or didn't have the ability to travel, and now have access to many good. Um, investors and coaches and so on. What do you think inclusion could do so much better now? How, how can we make it much better? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, so, you know, VC and venture was a local industry. You know, the old rule of thumb was anyone outside of 20 miles of where you live, you broadly wouldn't look at them all. Yeah, really exceptional cases. You know, but What we've found, particularly in the past 20 years, but more specifically in the past couple of years, is that the information asymmetry between a VC and the entrepreneur has closed. Entrepreneurs can network as easily with other companies that the VC is backed and do due diligence on that VC. It's easier to get a track record. It's also easier to find other opportunities for you know, for, you know, what deal terms mean, but also other types of investor. That capital increase creates competition. So that information asymmetry, which is a big part of why three quarters of entrepreneurs don't succeed. But VCs get their money back almost all the time because they got preference shares. So the entrepreneur who's sweating away and she's really struggling and she's putting her heart and soul into you know, the business, she works away for 10 years, the company, for whatever reason, doesn't necessarily make it. VCs force a sale, get one times their money back. They walk away. The entrepreneurs ended up probably still without their house, probably still struggling away. You know, there's a great example in the UK. There's a sort of betting online betting company, um, I think it was called FanDuel, if memory serves. They had an amazing sale, 450 million to DraftKings, if memory serves. A big exit. The entrepreneurs, do you know how much they made from that sale? The founders, the staff, $450 million exit. Fuck all. Sweet FA, as they would say in the UK. You know why? Because the preference shares... The amount of money they've gone in wiped them out. Didn't do it. Reason why the VCs were like, well, we don't need to ask for more money. We don't need to hang on. They didn't care. The entrepreneurs were stuffed. You know, that type of inclusive, you know, non-inclusive practice, you know, isn't great. And I think corporates and other non-traditional investors can be a little bit more holistic because if a corporate's going to work with entrepreneurs or potentially buy them, They want them motivated. They don't want them sort of feeling they've been a bit ripped off. VCs work on a portfolio diversified basis. So inclusion 
is about thinking who among the stakeholders benefit. If you do a shitty app that makes the world a better place, a worse place, sorry, you know, who benefits from that? We've just gone through this, you know, dark moment where people are using social media platforms to foment trouble on a business model that's designed and created in order to get eyeballs from a gamification process in order to make the world a worse place. And benefit from uh, a more polarized world. So and I think it's shocking. And I think the only, the good thing that I think you know, we can get towards is this idea that inclusion is about understanding, you know, a broader perspective of who benefits. If it's just financial and you're a shareholder and you double your money, whoopee, great for you. But if you've done that by trashing the climate around you or the society around you, or trashing the entrepreneurs, or trashing your other investors, I don't think that's okay. And I think the inclusive part is thinking about not just the types of entrepreneurs that you back, but what's their moral position and what's the VCs. And I think it's been great in the past 24 hours that we've been, you know, you know, is how many investors are saying, we're going to take this a bit more thoughtfully. You know, the impact investing you know, understanding what it is this business does and how ethically you approach it is super important. I really like what you're saying. Actually, I think it's very short-sighted for investors to try to get too much and the entrepreneurs get nothing or very little. And if you think about impact investing, which is really about you invest in the entrepreneurs that really want to contribute to the world, if they succeed, you want them to become really rich so they can then themselves fund other impactful projects. So I think it's short-sighted not to think that way. And and I think you have a point, and I think uh, Shama... Yes, exactly. I was going to say, Ronnie Cohen's book. Everyone should read Impact Investing. Ronnie Cohen was actually the sort of founding brains behind why I set up the company. I read his book, and he very kindly spoke to me um, at the launch of it, actually. He signed it for me. But... Um, you know, on the second bounce of the ball. But yeah, impact investing, you know, just think a little bit beyond just, you know, the here and now. World can be a better place. Yeah. But anyway, Nicola, I interrupted. Well, I think you also have a point, which is the entrepreneurs, they don't have a portfolio approach. I think social capital, Chamet, made me very clear. VCs, CVCs, we have a portfolio. Some will fail. That's fine. It's a portfolio. That's how we take risk because we have some which will turn a lot, some won't. But for the entrepreneurs, that's their life's work. That's their life's mission. They fail. They have nothing else. So I, I really like the way you're describing it. So well, I think it only resonates with you more than perhaps others, Nicola, because you were a really successful entrepreneur. Yeah, you know, you know, you've you know, you've you've had an amazing career and track record yourself. So uh, you know, I think, but it it's a very humbling thing to set up a company and just it's really difficult. And you need a lot of luck for things to work. Doesn't matter how smart you are, how hard you work. You know, just think of all these poor people who've you know been whacked by COVID. You know, some businesses will do well, of course, but you know, all those people who've given their heart and soul and they're just being devastated by something out of their control. You can never predict it. At the end, it's all about the entrepreneurs. This we have to see how we make them successful. And earlier in the interview, you mentioned about adding value to them. So I want to go to something really important, which is not obvious to most people, but 
you had this very interesting statistics you shared uh, online, which is about nearly every quarter for the past four, six, eight quarters, more than 20% of corporate venturing investors are new investors. And so that means that these corporate venturing entities that are starting or doing their first investment, they may not have all the benefits of best practices and networks that we discussed. What would be your advice to people who are just starting? They are making their first minority equity investment. Of course, you're going to say, come to Digital Forum. But beyond that, what, what would you recommend to them? I mean, it's difficult. I mean, so yeah, you're spot on. So, you know, of those 2,000 plus corporates that did a deal last year, about um, 700 or more, you know, were doing their first deal. You know, record highs, each quarter by quarter, Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4 records each quarter, you know, compared to prior. Because people were using COVID to try and lean in to innovation. They realised that, you know, parent company needed to do it, you know, usually because they were affected. They had to start to do stuff differently. You know, so they had to start engaging. You know, and a lot of corporates were doing more. You know, they had the cash coming in and they had to step in. They said, now's our time to find those entrepreneurs that we really wanted to work with. So I think the first bit of advice is well done. You know, you've taken that leap of faith. You're doing stuff at a time that's slightly counterintuitive to venture history. You know, and you started doing deals at a better time in the economic cycle, you know, and that gives you room. You know, if you do cheaper deals in less obvious areas, it gives you a better margin for error. You know, you might be hideously wrong. You might choose to invest in X country or X sector, and actually the country tanks, the sector tanks, you know, the entrepreneurs are going to struggle with those sort of, you know, headwinds against them, you know, but taking that first step is important, you know, but being thoughtful about the timing, being thoughtful about where you go. If you go in, if you think Ronnie Cohen, second mounts of the ball, if you go into super hot area here, it's going to be really difficult. It's going to be difficult for you to find good entrepreneurs. It's going to be difficult for you to find good co-investors. You're going to be learning and paying high multiples on stuff that you don't necessarily know what the hell you're doing. So the advice I would take is, listen to Nicola. When Nicola goes, hmm, we had really good support from our CEO and we chose areas which wasn't obvious for our people to invest in, like advanced materials, which were challenging. Shock horror, three years later, you know, those areas are actually a bit more interested and you've been able to get some great returns. That provides validation back to the parent company that you know what you're doing. And then it gives you more leeway to then carry on and do more deals. So the number one advice beyond start at the right time is think about what you're doing. If it seems hot, i.e. there's stuff written about in the Wall Street Journal and the FT, you're really going to struggle. You know, if you're investing in not yet digitalized area here or you've got a unique angle and it's widget there, whatever it might be. You've got a better chance. You've just got a bit of time. If you're doing it super competitive as a newbie, you're basically done money waiting to be fleeced. Uh, uh, I agree. 
And, and so I'm going to ask a question that leads to what you just said, but then I'm going to take one of the questions from the audience on the Q&A. Um, with all of that said, what is for you the very best reason? There are many reasons, but what is the very best reasons for corporate to start a corporate VC? And this is your opinion. I'm not looking at statistics, just your personal opinion. So it's a service profession. You know, it's tough. You know, it's hard to service your parent company and the entrepreneurs. It's hard to go out networking. It's a lonely job, long hours. Pay might be pretty reasonable compared to most industries, but, you know, that's not a great compensation if you're on the road. You know, you've got family, you know, and you're going to different countries and you're getting, you know, terrible emails. You know, it's so it's difficult. Do it because you think, you know, you want to and you're prepared to put the hours in over a long period of time, usually without a lot of support and a lot of success. So, you know, I think going in eyes open, um, you know, I, I think is you know, is, is the sort of, you know, useful bit. I, I think it's very useful because I think many people are saying this is easy. It looks easy. You just invest in startups and that's it. And then you get the reward. It's very, very hard to do very, very well. So I think that's really nice. And then the question from the audience was, what should CVCs not continue doing? I mean, there's a whole load, whole, whole load of things, you know, um, you know, the thing I would hate to see, you referenced it before, you know, it's quite a collegial, you know, industry. People are prepared to share their war stories. They're prepared to talk to other, you know, corporates, even if at a parent company level, they might be competitive. You know, I think the thing I was quite worried about a couple of years ago when it, it got quite expensive and so rich and, you know, people liked the idea of it, was it started attracting people who weren't, you know, who basically thought they could get rich. And I think, you know, you're well paid and you've got the potential to, to get even better rewarded, you know, but that real sort of mercenary, pecuniary attitude of I'm doing this because I want to be like XVC and be extremely wealthy if it goes well by taking 20% of the carried interest plus two and a half percent in the assets under management. Yeah, if you want to do that, try and become an independent VC. If you want to try and do it, and you, it's hard to do as a corporate. You know, and I think the concern I had, you know, and still have at times, is is the people sometimes coming into the industry, you know, are doing it for mercenary reasons. They think it's the next hot, you know, it's like being an investment banker 20 years ago or a private equity executive 15 years ago, whatever it might be. You know, probably a Bitcoin, Bitcoin to a minor two or three years ago. You know, do you know what I mean? There's some, there's some really unpleasant, unethical, mercenary people out there. Sure, lovely people face to face. You know, and after 25 years of being in journalism, I've met some really unpleasant people. So I know. And on the whole, CBCs are nice people. You know, they're doing it because they think they could do it well. And they understand that while it's a perfectly lucrative, you know, good career, it's, you know, there's a lot to be gained from helping entrepreneurs and helping the parent companies. Because it's, you know, to your earlier point, Nicola, you know, it's not just about the entrepreneurs doing well. You've got to make sure the corporate does. 
you know, having a great idea as an entrepreneur and taking 20 years for your battery to, you know, be improved is good, but wouldn't be so much better if it could scale up and you could get that electric vehicle battery to all the cars. You know, so I think that scale, that opportunity to move faster and more rapidly to make the world a better place is fundamental. And it takes a partnership. You know, take, um, you know, take sort of COVID, the vaccine coming out of Germany, CureVac. It's, found, it's funded by one of the founders of SAP. Nice guy, rich, invested in it, wanted it to do well got it to a great sort of position. They've just done a partnership with Bayer, very big pharma company, to scale it out. What's going to make the difference to the company? Be great, it'd be fine. Bayer will be perfectly good, stock rose 2%. Does the world get better if there is more vaccines for this wretched COVID thing? Yes. You need a partnership. It's not just individual. And so I think my concern would be is... You know, people coming in thinking it's a get rich quick scheme. If you want to do that, set up a Ponzi scheme, set up a hedge fund, because there's a really easy way to do a hedge fund and make money. And it's flipping a coin. You know, it might work. It might not work. And it's all about just timing some of the you know, insurance risk. You know, so if you want to do that and you want to flip a coin, go into Bitcoin, go into hedge funds. There's loads of stuff within financial services, let alone some of the sort of corruption and other things that you can do. Just don't come a CBC because we don't want you. That, the mercenary aspect, I think, is, is really important to, to understand. And actually, I'm going to share a golden nugget from Paul Holland. Yeah, great guy. That golden nugget, which I think was amazing. And it feels like a simple thing, but it's really meaningful in the way we think about it. Uh, he told us, don't call this um, startup that comes to you deals, which is very transactional, call them projects. This is this entrepreneur's life mission. And therefore, in TDK Ventures, we never call them deals. We call them projects. And I think in it, it's a vocabulary, but it's also a way of thinking about the project. And, we are, and, and I think it creates more respect, more appreciation, and the right mindset to it. So I... If it's a golden nugget I want to relay here is from Paul, which is don't call these deals deals. They are projects. They are, the, they are entrepreneurs behind who really want to have an impact in the society. And I think that when I see other VCs or CVCs that tell, call them deals, it's funny because I start to have this little light coming in. Yeah. So. It's a great phrase. I love that golden nugget. I might use it myself, actually. But, um, yeah, I think it's spot on. Words have power. I mean, you know, your intentionality, your affirmations that you put out there, what you want to sort of achieve. And it's the same otherwise. If you call it a deal and it's a transaction to you, you know, it's it's so spot on. Oh, that's a great nugget. Thanks, Nico. And Paul. So we're getting to the top of the hour. We have five minutes left. And I mean, yesterday was a very dark day for America. Uh, I'm, I'm really hoping this is hitting the rock bottom and now it's only going up. But I want to end with something inspiring. Uh, what do you think we can look forward to in 2021? And what can the CVC ecosystem really think about to make the world a better place? A, if you take a dollar bill, you know, it says, in God we trust. 
know, if you think about it and you say in innovation, we trust, you know, because you look at where we are now compared to a hundred years ago, hundred years ago, we just finished the Spanish flu, just come after the first world war. That was not fun. hundred years before that, you know, we just finished the Napoleonic war, you know, that was not fun either. Hundred years before that, you know, pre-industrialization, you know, okay, there's some great stuff happening in Renaissance Italy, you know, in that sort of time period. But on the whole, the average person was not very happy, didn't live very long, and did not have a lot of benefits. Why are we where we are now talking over the internet thousands of miles from each other? because of people working together, believing in innovation, believing in a better future. You know, it's not rocket science. Live for yourself, you know, live alone, live for others, live again. You know, and I think it's just being able to have faith that we can do this. We can make the world a better place. Can't do it by ourselves. We can do it together. I love it. And maybe I'm going to add one more question, which is in that direction, which is many corporates start to take ESGs and sustainable development goals much more seriously. Um, how do you see that helping making better investments? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer, to be honest. Um, you know, So we did some work with the United Nations a couple of years ago, thanks to Shami Love and Amanda Feldman over at um, Heliotropy. And, um, you know, it... What it did was it looked at the CVC portfolio company, so 25,000 or so that we, we tracked, you know, and then overlaid the SDG lens on them, you know, the impact lens. And it's a remarkable how many of the corporate back deals are SDG or impact orientated. They're not called that, but they are. So, and that's because it's not, rocket science to say you know if this is going to be targeting an underserved market think illiteracy or poverty reduction or it's dealing with climate change like electric cars you're more likely to be dealing with an issue that's hard big market and that people will want it's exactly what gen from sony innovations fund said to one of our earlier interview Startups want to make a better world. So most of them will fit a good purpose. So. No, most, a lot of startups don't. Most of them just want to put a bit of food on the table, roof over their heads, or you know, they just want to make a bit of money. So, But some do. Some do. Well, I think that's the one that Sony invests in. So, <laughs> so I like it, and Sony's spot on. Yeah, they set up an ESG fund for that reason. But, you know, say so there's Salesforce. There's a lot of good out there, but a lot more corporates, if they looked at their portfolio, would realise they were ESG or, you know, impact orientated. They just hadn't necessarily termed it that way. So I think it creates a lot of potential. Futures that way. Very nice. Jim, I want to thank you for this one out with you. That was really, really good. You gave a perspective that you only can give. So I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for your time. Well, it'd be my honor to, um, to hear the questions. I always find, I uh, think you, you, know, you learn more about uh, the questions asked than the answered. And it's definitely true in this case. Thank you, Jim. 
Global Venturing Review was produced by In-Ear Production. You can find out more by going to inearproduction.com.